following contain situations and circumstances that are relatable to all women, but are still uncomfortable and sometimes quite awful. We don't pull any punches. Listener discretion is advised. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change. Turn the ship another way. Feel it in the darkness. We're sailing right into those jagged cliffs. Yeah. Some say we've always been insane. Hey, life's a foolish game. Life's a foolish game. Eddie the crooner, Eddie the superstar, Eddie the stud, the Adonis, the guy all women dreamed of having and all men dreamed of being, the one who left Hollywood's girl next door pining for him when he married the most beautiful woman in the world. Eddie was the man. So long as he didn't let a little thing like reality get in the way. Welcome to Frenemies, a Toil and Trouble Media original. On this show, we discuss notable women and the feuds that helped define them. This week, we continue our tale of Debbie Reynolds and Elizabeth Taylor returning to the source of their initial conflicts, Eddie Fisher, a douchebag that thought he had them both under his trouser spell. While both women had successfully navigated their way through the scandal, he'd been sacked. Unwilling to accept defeat or, at the very least, comeuppance, Eddie tried to assume control of the narrative and some part of his new wife's career. When that didn't happen, he tried to save face. And when that didn't happen, he closed his eyes altogether. Hearing confirmation from Elizabeth herself that she had feelings for co-star Richard Burton, he refused to believe the marriage was doomed. Eddie listened to the words of his wife and summarily blew them off. She didn't know what she was talking about. It was just a bump in the road. But the bump ate at him. Eddie wasn't one to suffer bumps. When Liz was hospitalized following an overdose, he rushed to see her at the hospital, but left soon after and went to New York. As filming of her new movie, Cleopatra, progressed, the couple remained on opposite sides of the country, barely seeing each other at all. The truth of her onset affair finally came to light from Burton, of all people. When Eddie called home to check on his wife, Burton answered the phone. What are you doing in my house? Eddie asked. Burton replied, What do you think I'm doing? I'm fucking your wife. The brazen response sent Eddie into a rage. He bought a gun and returned home with thoughts of killing him. With weapon in hand, he let himself into the house and quietly creeped up the stairs. He opened the bedroom door and went inside. There, he found Burton lying in bed with Liz, holding his wife in his very own bed. She awoke to find Eddie standing over the couple, holding the gun. She cried out. Now remember, this isn't a true crime show. This is Frenemies. We're discussing female rivalries, remember? So she cried out, and Eddie stopped himself before pulling the trigger. Don't worry, Elizabeth, he said. I'm not going to kill you. You're too beautiful. He left the home without firing a shot and she barely saw Eddie again. Thankfully, all involved lived to see another day, and the story circulated quietly in entertainment circles. 
As ironic as it was, it offered Debbie some comfort. She'd warned him. She knew Elizabeth never really loved him. Elizabeth preferred her men to be intense, gorgeous, and from her side of the pond. Eddie was merely a placeholder that kept her bed warm during her mourning period. It's fun to be right. Following the incident, Liz dropped Eddie to pursue a romance with Burton. They were married nine days after her marriage to Eddie dissolved. Once joined in matrimony, the couple worked to unify everything else, too. They appeared together on the much-panned VIPs and again two years later for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, a film that earned Liz a second Oscar for her role as an overweight, angry wife of an alcoholic professor, played by Burton. All the while, the couple endured constant harassment. Burton for being a sex-fueled cad and Liz for, you guessed it, repeating previous antics. The relationship caused so much scandal that a congresswoman from Georgia tried to stop the pair from returning to America on grounds of undesirability, and the Vatican published an open letter about their erotic vagrancy. But Elizabeth shrugged it off. Part of that erotic vagrancy was the thought that she shouldn't have divorced Nikki Hilton either. So what did the Pope know? Both ladies moved on with their lives until one fateful cruise aboard the RMS Queen Elizabeth. While Debbie was aboard with husband number two, she noticed the ship's porters carrying luggage past. A lot of luggage. Birds and dog carriers, too. Her heart sunk as she recognized the owner of the absurd entourage. Liz was on the same cruise. She looked around, wondering if there was still time to jump ship. And she might have, but Carl told her to stop being silly. Instead, she took a chance and sent a note of greetings. Elizabeth soon replied, and the four had dinner together. To her great relief, they decided to let bygones be bygones and just got smashed. The evening ended with both women bonding over their disdain for Eddie Fisher, a lot of wine, and a mutual affection that no man could ever destroy. And they were finally able to find closure. Debbie told Liz she was never bitter towards her about the affair. If anything, she was grateful. It took a long time for all the lives to be brought together again, including Elizabeth, including Eddie, and myself, I mean, she said. It's just something we went through, and it wasn't good for any of us. Their marriage wasn't good for them? That fell apart. The ending of ours, later years, I mean. I really owe Elizabeth a favor for breaking that whole situation. But I don't blame her for the break. I blame Eddie for the break. Maybe I stick with women. And she should. By then, Liz had some time to process things, too. I think I ended up being the Scarlet Woman, partly because of my rather puritanical upbringing and beliefs, she said. I couldn't just have a romance. It had to be marriage. You don't get over men like the flu. Every divorce is like a little death. But I'm not through with men, she said. That wouldn't be realistic. Debbie added, I feel that Elizabeth needed desperately a replacement of Mike Todd, and in Eddie, that's what she had. She didn't intend to go out and destroy me or any other woman. That's what she needed at the time, and naturally, that's a little bit selfish. But isn't the end of every love affair selfish? Or the beginning selfish? You have to look at what life is all about, she said, and is it worth it? And is he worth it? The friendship, perhaps, was worth more. 
After coming to peace with their mother, Elizabeth would go on to reach out to Debbie's children as well and make amends. She immediately took my hand and pulled me down to sit beside her, Todd Fisher said. And for the next hour, she talked in extreme detail about nothing but how much she loved Mike Todd and how no matter how many other loves might come along, she was sure no one ever measured up to him. I sat there and listened, not especially interested, but a little fascinated that this woman, who'd technically been my stepmother of about 10 minutes, who, along with my father, had dealt my mother one of the most devastating betrayals of her life, seemed to feel connected to me, maybe because I was named after the greatest love of her life. Carrie also accepted Elizabeth's apology. Reuniting with her friend allowed Debbie to heal, and the timing of their reunion couldn't have been better. Not long after, Debbie learned about some of Carl's other interests, namely gambling and prostitution. Media outlets reported Carl spent extravagant sums on these um, passions, and when he exhausted his resources, he tapped into hers. Over their 13-year relationship, he frittered away over $100 million of their combined wealth before sticking her with a $3 million bill from his creditors after the divorce. So it was back to work for Debbie. In the next couple years, she starred in The Rat Race, The Pleasure of His Company, The Second Time Around, and How the West Was Won, before winning an Academy Award nomination for her performance in the title role of the unsinkable Molly Brown. The musical biopic of a society lady and Titanic survivor hit a chord with the box office, and with her as well. After that came more movies, Goodbye Charlie, The Singing Nun, and Divorce American Style, along with television shows, What's the Matter with Helen, and the short-lived Debbie Reynolds Show. As Debbie reeled from the emotional and financial impact of divorce number two, she also took some time for herself to be with her children. Her daughter Carrie had just launched her career with an appearance on Broadway. Todd was still in high school. She did some studio work, doing voiceovers for the movie adaptation of Charlotte's Web before turning towards stage work, performing in Las Vegas and Broadway. She received a Tony Award nomination in 1973, and in 1976, she starred in a live musical review at the Minskoff Theater, simply titled Debbie. In the 1980s, she was cast in guest spots on TV shows like Alice, The Love Boat, and Hotel, and returned to Broadway, where she replaced Lauren Bacall in Woman of the Year. She also found love once more with real estate entrepreneur Richard Hamlet, and the two were wed in 1985. That's the last thing Eddie wanted to hear, another ex running off with a Richard. When not filming with her Richard, Liz and Burton occupied their time with passionate sex and alcohol-fueled spending sprees, including a $960,000 jet plane the couple bought on a whim. They snapped up properties in Ireland, Switzerland, and Puerto Vallarta. They collected paintings by Picasso, Monet, Augustus John, and Rembrandt. And they spent a ridiculous amount of money on jewelry. Liz loved jewelry. The couple also gave generously to charities, extended family, and the staff supporting their shenanigans. Much of this over-the-top lifestyle involved socializing with the European jet set, something Liz enjoyed but Burton abhorred. Heavy drinking led to heavy petting, and not always with each other. The pair were said to have had multiple affairs, increasing the rift between them with each infidelity. As alcohol and jealousy took over their marriage, the couple engaged in horrific fights and explosive confrontations. In Burton's private diaries, 
He revealed there were instances of violence where she hit him with her fingers covered in jeweled rings like a bedazzled pair of brass knuckles. Journaling about these incidents, he confessed he was enraged every time he thought about it. Addiction, alcoholism, affairs, and an unsustainable lifestyle eventually tore the legendary lovers apart. They divorced in June 1974, only to remarry in 1975 and file for divorce again less than a year later. Burton admitted he never wanted to remarry in the first place, but went ahead and did it anyway. Following their second divorce, he went on to remarry a month after his divorce finalized. That had to sting. Of the couple's wild relationship, Liz once told a friend, I don't want to be in that much love ever again. I gave everything away. My soul, my being, everything. Things didn't work out any better for Debbie when it came to romancing Richards. Her business staff soon began suspecting husband number three was stealing money from her and lying about it. The blatant behavior grew so bad that at one point, one of her employees had enough and submitted her resignation, saying, I can't stand the lying that's going on. After retreating into her work to hide from the truth, Debbie had no choice but to deal with a betraying husband again. They divorced in 1996. It was devastating. Debbie really thought she'd found happiness this time. Instead, what she found was a court-order payout of $270,000 to get his name off a Las Vegas casino they'd purchased together and a subsequent bankruptcy. Like always, she shook it off and redirected her energies back into her work, earning an Emmy nomination for her recurring role on the sitcom Will and Grace. For her part, Elizabeth rolled the marital dice again by marrying Republican politician John Warner in 1976 and construction worker Larry Pretensky in 1988. Neither marriage registered the kind of impact her first five did. By this time, the public just accepted this as one of the violet-eyed icon's quirks. Once, when asked why she got married so often, she said, I don't know, honey, it sure beats the hell out of me. Some jokingly referred to her as Mrs. Hilton Wilding Fisher Burton Burton Warner Fortensky. Free of obstructive men, our girls were able to rely on each other as well. When the September 11th attacks occurred, Liz put Debbie up in her Manhattan hotel, and their bond inspired Carrie to co-write a script for a TV movie the pair would later star in, amply named These Old Broads. The plot included a storyline very similar to the women's real-life experiences. In the film, both characters settled the score over a past flame each was involved with, coyly named Freddy. Both women eagerly agreed to the project, marveling at Carrie's beautifully crafted script that captured not only her own trauma, but the pain of two women who, despite it all, never really stopped loving each other. The film gave them a chance to reconnect as they hadn't done in years. Debbie and Elizabeth were teens again, acting on a set during the day, having slumber parties at night. The two chatted over numerous movie nights, sitting on Elizabeth's bed with two forks and a pumpkin pie between them that Debbie brought just for the occasion. One day, Elizabeth asked Debbie to come to her dressing room. There, with tears in her eyes, she apologized to her friend once more. Debbie, she said, I'm so sorry for what I did to you with Eddie. The emotion and pain expressed caught her off guard, but Debbie could see her friend was still haunted. Her voice broke as she said, 
I just feel so awful when I think about how I hurt you and your children. But it was okay. Debbie gave her a hug and told her so. It was another lifetime ago. It was all behind them. The women carried their support of each other long after the film wrapped up. Todd recalled attending an AIDS march in San Francisco with his mother and Elizabeth, saying it was fun to see them together again. It was magical. The forgiveness that took place between them was important, a bond that would remain intact for the rest of their lives. People always assume you're going to carry a grudge, but I don't do that, said Debbie. We passed through that with time. Eddie's fame continued to wane until there wasn't much left except for stories of the past. So he put out an autobiography released in 1981, coincidentally at the height of Carrie's Star Wars fame. In it, he remained bitter towards the first Mrs. Fisher, portraying Debbie as calculating and tight-fisted, going to great lengths to insist their marriage was doomed long before the affair. Debbie denied many of his allegations as being absolutely not true, but added she never read the book. She had no venom about Eddie and didn't want any. She'd given him enough of her energy and refused to give him any more. As the father of her children, she didn't want to dislike him. And reading his cash grab wouldn't help. She moved on, and Eddie no longer mattered. The same year Elizabeth divorced him, he married actress Connie Stevens. They split in 1969 after having two daughters. His fourth marriage to Terry Richard occurred in 1975, lasting six months before ending on a similar note. In his later years, Eddie was able to recognize how some of his decisions didn't work out in his favor. It wasn't my intention for my romantic life to overshadow other aspects, he told the Associated Press in 1991. I know that it has. In 1993, he married Betty Lynn. They stayed together until her death in 2001. Nine years later, Eddie fell and broke his hip. He died two weeks later from surgical complications. He was 82 years old. The subsequent years proved to be an up-and-down affair for Elizabeth. Her film career waned, with few of her movies able to gain much traction with the critics or the public. As beautiful and dynamic as she was, there were other beautiful and dynamic actresses coming to the studios, too. Younger actresses with a lot less baggage. She also began to feel the health effects of living like a rock star. In early 2011, she was admitted to Cedar sinai Hospital for congestive heart failure. She passed away on March 23rd. After her death, her son Michael Wilding released a statement saying, My mother was an extraordinary woman who lived life to the fullest with great passion, humor, and love. We will always be inspired by her enduring contribution to our world. Her loss left a hole in Debbie's heart, of which she would never recover. She was grief-stricken once again when Carrie suffered a massive heart attack and died. She died the next day of a stroke. Stay tuned after the break as we unpack more about Elizabeth Taylor. Elizabeth Taylor once called Michael Todd one of the three true loves of her life, right next to Richard Burton and her jewelry. She'd never been particularly lucky at love, but it wasn't for lack of trying. Through decades of interviews, Liz tried to explain her almost compulsive habit to marry as the result of her near-puritanical upbringing. 
But perhaps this didn't play as great a role as her exposure to sexual abuse from a young age. The Centers for Disease Control report child sexual abuse and molestation are linked to a wide range of serious mental health issues. Issues which can manifest shortly after the occurrence, but are just as likely to remain dormant, only to appear many years later. There are a lot of reasons for this, one of which may be the fact that in childhood, a victim may not fully understand what is happening, requiring time and experience to help them see it. And molestation, in particular, can be confusing, especially to a child. When abuse isn't undeniably painful, it could take years, maturity well into adulthood, for a victim to fully realize what occurred. More and more studies suggest adult survivors often don't recall childhood sexual abuse at all until asked about it. Whether a victim immediately recognizes abuse or doesn't realize it until adulthood, they're at risk for developing similar mental health concerns. The most common issues, including post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, and suicidal thoughts. Survivors of childhood sexual abuse are also more likely to struggle with alcoholism, eating disorders, and engage in sexually risky behavior, such as having sex at an early age. In a variety of interviews and private conversations with friends, Elizabeth Taylor frequently reported experiences that could fit these descriptions. She claimed as a teenager she lost her virginity to actor Peter Lawford, had flings with Ronald Reagan and Errol Flynn, was seduced by Orson Welles, and participated in a threesome involving John F. Kennedy. Even if only a fraction of what she said was actually true, it certainly shows a pattern of predatory behavior she never should have been subjected to. Contracted to MGM for nearly 20 years, Liz described herself during the early years of her career as the studio's chattel. Just another prop. Is it such a stretch to consider that the industry's real draws, the powerful male actors and executives, wouldn't see her and consequently treat her the same way? The studio controlled what she wore, where she went, and even picked her dates. Early interviews given to publicize her movies were tightly scripted as well, with the teenage Taylor displaying little indication that she was even interested in boys claiming that those her own age were too scared to approach her anyway. Most contemporary biographers and journalists stuck to the authorized version of that tale, that Elizabeth was pure and chaste and lost her virginity only after marrying her first husband. But is this the case? Could the studio system's vice-like grip on publicity have stopped scandals about their most valuable child star from leaking out? Insiders agree she always displayed a strong, rebellious streak and a desire for independence and personal control. And the young actress, though small for her age, was deeply ambitious and sexually precocious. She was 11 when she auditioned for the starring role in National Velvet. Do you remember how it took her four months to land that role? There may have been a good reason for that. When the producers told her she was too flat-chested to play an adolescent, Liz defiantly replied, don't worry, you'll have your breasts. Interesting line coming from a pure and chaste teenager, don't you think? Still, three months later, she returned and showed off a newly acquired B-cup bust, one which she claimed she achieved by using fast-grow creams, a special high-fat diet, 
and rigorous chest development exercises. Yeah, right. Time Magazine commented on Taylor's pre-adolescent sexuality on the screen, and they weren't the only ones to notice. Those who had worked with her in previous films said stardom robbed her of her childish sweetness and shyness. Or was it, as we discussed, the result of spending too much time with a pervy co-star? No one argues there was a change in her behavior. As other girls her age still were playing with dolls, Elizabeth seemed to suddenly become very aware of her effect on men. As fellow actress Mary Astor put it, there was a look in those violet eyes that was somewhat calculating, as though she knew exactly what she wanted and was quite sure of getting it. It's unfair to assume she acquired that knowledge in a vacuum of piety. And to do so discounts a lot of negative, abusive elements of the industry that we know to be true. By the time she was 14, Taylor was painting her nails scarlet and wearing peasant blouses with plunging necklines. She would squeeze in her already tiny waistline and thrust out her breasts. In later interviews, she admitted, I wanted to be a woman. I flaunted an hourglass figure at a stage when most girls were still developing. At night, she would lie awake, practicing her French kissing on her satin pillows. This was long before cable, the internet, and social media. So where did a sheltered 14-year-old child restrained to a film set learn about French kissing? When she discovered how much attention she got by wearing an off-the-shoulder blouse in the MGM dining room, studio executives said she became impossible. Anne Strauss, the studio executive charged with enforcing dress codes for actors and its strict ban on cleavage, had her hands full with Elizabeth. Forced to sit at the children's table, Strauss claimed Liz would have herself paged when she would then pull her neckline down, expose her shoulders, and walk through the length of the commissary so everyone could see her. Perhaps some explanation can be found in the mixed messages offered by her mother. As Liz frequently described, she was raised with conservative values when it came to romance. Casual relationships and affairs were not acceptable. Love resulted in marriage. But where were the boundaries and lessons young Liz needed to learn about handling attraction? Instead of discouraging her young daughter from being treated as a sex object, her mother Sarah Taylor appears to have encouraged it. Described as hugely ambitious, observers recalled an occasion when Liz was invited to visit the White House. Sarah Taylor was said to have dressed her daughter like a quotes-unquote 13-year-old Joan Crawford hussy. In a black velvet dress, white fur coat, and nylon stockings, the wardrobe choice certainly made heads turn more than lace-trimmed bobby socks and saddle shoes. Men were left gasping in her wake. She is the most beautiful creature I have ever seen in my life, said writer J.D. Salinger after meeting her. And since she designed the costume, it is reasonable to believe that Sarah would have tutored her daughter on how to play the part as well. She certainly didn't pump the brakes when her daughter started bearing out of her lane. She told a radio interviewer that boys her own age bored her, but admitted she wanted to do crazy, silly things with men who were a little older before she could legally drive. She had just turned 15 when Orson Welles saw her in the MGM dining room, calling her unbelievable. Many years later, the iconic director said, Unlike other figures in Hollywood, I have never found myself attracted to young girls. 
Elizabeth Taylor had something which transcended age. I will never forget how she moved down the commissary aisle holding her food tray. I lusted for that young girl and felt, for the first time in my life, like a dirty old man. He denied surrendering to his lustful thoughts, but that wasn't the verdict of authors Prince and Porter, who claimed Wells was among a string of famous men who had their way with her. Liz claimed he forced himself on her in his dressing room after luring her there with a promise of a film role. Oh my God, it's a prequel to Harvey Weinstein. The duo also agree with suspicions she was 15 when she had a dalliance with the suave, aristocratic actor Peter Lawford, the future brother-in-law of John F. Kennedy, and a man on whom she had a huge crush. Robert Stack, one of her co-stars, allegedly became another lover and reintroduced her to the future president. Liz had briefly met JFK as a little girl when her parents were invited to the U.S. ambassador's residence in London, where his father was then ambassador. Authors claim Liz told friends that on their second encounter, she ended up in a threesome in Stack's swimming pool with him and JFK. It reportedly reoccurred when Lawford and Liz shared a limo on the way to the home of the media mogul William Randolph Hearst as well. Now, before you try to escape the horror of these reports by clinging to nostalgia, be aware that the things Liz experienced don't play out, even by contemporary standards. At the time, the age of consent in California was 18, meaning the men involved would have been guilty of rape even then, a fact they all would have been aware of. Add to this the fact that the incidents occurred against a young, vulnerable girl eager to advance her career and older, more powerful men doesn't age well either. Errol Flynn, Hollywood's consummate philanderer, was also a perpetrator, authors claim. Liz joined the director Michael Curtis at a film screening at Flynn's Hollywood home, only to find, when the lights came on at the end, Curtis had disappeared and she was left alone with the actor. After getting her tipsy on champagne, otherwise known as plying her with alcohol, the two allegedly ended up in bed. Nor could she find safety within the studio grounds. Robert Taylor, who gave a 16-year-old Elizabeth her first on-screen romantic kiss while making the British thriller Conspirator, became so aroused filming the scene, he urged the cameraman to shoot him from the waist up. I mean, gross! It's claimed Elizabeth met Ronald Reagan when she was trying to get a starring role in a 1947 film called That Hagen Girl. The actor and future U.S. president, then 36 and estranged from his wife Jane Wyman, reportedly seduced her on his sofa after inviting her over for dinner at his Hollywood home. Now, Ronnie was hardly one of Hollywood's notorious skirt chasers, so there has been questions raised as to whether or not this was true. It doesn't appear Liz began telling friends that story until the 1980s, prompting skeptics to conclude she invented it in anger over President Reagan's failure to do more to fight AIDS. But then again, Liz wasn't known to be a liar either. As the list of Liz's lovers, or to be more accurately described, attackers, grows, the sheer number casts these claims into doubt. It's hard to believe that so many assaults occurred without any coming to light. Then again, is there a limit to how many times a child can be abused? Is there a kind of punch card Liz forgot to carry in her wallet? And it's hard to believe the story the studios put out there either. Wouldn't it be just as plausible that their young starlet was exposed to even a fraction of this kind of abuse and that it would have been covered up? 
This would certainly explain Liz's later struggles with depression, addiction, alcoholism, and suicide attempts. Desperate measures to heal a lifelong trauma. There's no way for us to ever really know what happened. Everyone involved is long dead. But what can be said is that the body of Liz's work continues to be overshadowed, not by her sexual escapades, but by her compassion and generous nature. That and the change in the way we view situations like Liz may have faced. I like to think that in light of the Me Too movement, she would have spoken out in support of the victims. She was always a diamond, strong and dazzling. This has been Frenemies. Thanks for listening. Frenemies is an original production of Toil and Trouble Media. Executive produced by Jennifer Beck. This episode was also written and performed by Jennifer Beck. I'm kind of a big deal. Additional production assistance was provided by Aaron Iris and David Beck. And our music was performed by Snowflake and Admiral Bob. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen and tell your friends. It helps us rise above the crap. And check out our website at toilandtroublemedia.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Threads. We're also on Patreon, and we have a YouTube channel if you want even more Toil and Trouble Media in your life. I lost control of those outlets a long time ago, so you never know what you're going to find. They're kind of like herding cats. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.